the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. What a week at the Supreme Court. Wow. That is the way I'm going to introduce this evening's show. Um, I, we could talk the entire weekend about the twists and turns and, and all of the different uh, analogies and the, the sort of spin-off arguments and just the lively discussion that we can have around the Supreme Court's decisions. Always say to the last minute, the best for last, all week. Uh, but I think we will sort of narrow it as much as we can because we uh, only have a certain amount of time on the air. And let's start with a fabulous guest. Larry, who do we have on the line? Amul Thapar is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and is the son of immigrants from India, a graduate of Boston College and the University of California at Berkeley Law School. He served as a U.S. attorney and district court judge before his appointment to the appellate court in 2017. He has a wife and three children that live in Covington, Kentucky. Judge Thapar has just come out with a new book titled The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him, that's published by Regnery Gateway. Welcome to the show, Judge. So good to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Judge, I have to ask you about the affirmative action decision this week. I mean, there are so many hot-button issues the Supreme Court's been grappling with the last couple of years, probably revisiting some of the so-called settled precedent that many people didn't think was going to be uh, unsettled, although I don't know why they would have, seeing sort of the trajectory of the court. But I would love giving your uh, knowledge of not only the Supreme Court process, the justices, but sitting as a judge and having to deal with some of these hot-button issues. What was your reaction to the affirmative action decision this week? You know, it, it goes to Chapter 3 of my book. So the case they were revisiting was actually a case known as Grutter. And Grutter was out of the university. It was the University of Michigan Law School, and they used race as a plus factor. And if you recall, that decision was in 2003. Um, they were hoping at that time that affirmative action would only be needed for 20 to 20. Well, they said 25 years more. Justice Thomas at the time, along with Justice Scalia and some others, dissented. And Justice Thomas pointed out that if it's the Constitution's colorblind, he, he went through in part, not like he did in the most recent case, the history, and talked about how the, the, ratif- the Reconstruction Amendments, meaning the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the 13th being banning slavery, the 14th including the Equal Protection Clause and Privileges or Immunities Clause, and the 15th the right to vote, 
and talked about how those amendments were meant to make the country colorblind. And I think one of the things the book really captures is the stories of the real people in front of the case, in front of the court and how Justice Thomas never forgets them. In the Grutter chapter, that's as true as ever as he talks about the what he calls the cognoscenti or the elites doing social experiments on other people's children. And to him, it's important that we treat people as individuals and don't stamp them with race. The most fascinating thing, if I may, that's not being talked about is in that Grutter case, Justice Thomas predicted that this could have the seeds, uh, meaning affirmative action, could have the seeds of segregation again with the way we were thinking of race. And he points out in his most recent concurrence that 43% of colleges now offer segregated housing, 46% offer segregated orientation programs, and 72% sponsor segregated graduation ceremonies. So those very fears he was having back in 2003, he is now talking about having proven out in his separate writing. Well, you know, I'm actually seeing those stories in the news about the segregated uh, dorm rooms and so forth. And I, I have been saying to myself, I can't believe it. We were making the full circle. We're going backwards, it seems. But uh, Judge Thapar, for 30 years, Clarence Thomas has been denounced as the cruelest justice, a betrayer of his race, an ideologue, and the enemy of the little guy. But in your new book, The People's Justice, with the subtitle Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him, you demolish that caricature. What is it about Justice Clarence Thomas that makes him such a compelling figure on the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I think now that sadly Justice Scalia has passed, he is the ultimate originalist, the longest serving originalist probably on any court. And thus he becomes a target because they say originalism favors the rich over the poor, the strong over the weak, the corporations over the consumers. It doesn't favor the little guy. Well, the stories, the real stories of the cases prove the opposite is true. And that's what I do. I tell the stories of the people in front of the court. I let your your listeners, if they read the book, walk aside the litigant in these gripping stories and see how the court reacts and they get to feel and see firsthand is he for the rich over the poor the strong over the weak the corporation over the consumer or is the opposite true he's actually for the rule of law and when he does that his originalism shows how the rule of law champ his way of interpreting the law champions both our constitution and ironically the people it protects which is often the little guy. You know, when you look at the way you can sort of see it through that lens, I was just wondering, um, you know, I know you've probably got uh, opinions on the other cases that came down this week as well. Are there some of the other big blockbuster decisions that, you know, um, really kind of struck you for some of the same reasons? You know, they didn't because I think the justices just do their best to get it right. And they really work through this stuff. When you see it from the inside, from my perspective, you see how hard the job is and how these all nine of them are just doing their best to get it right. I don't think they get enough credit candidly. I think so many people are attacking the court right now. I just wish they could see it from my side. I sit on a court with really diverse colleagues and meaning diversity of viewpoint. We, we often disagree without being disagreeable. We're like brothers and sisters and we're all working hard to get the answer right. And 
We don't, we try, and hopefully most of us don't pay attention to the outside world, but rather to the rule of law, because that often protects the little guy. And so if you look at, contrary to what you hear, if you look at, for example, the first chapter in the book, I'm happy to go through it a little bit and just give a flavor to your reader of how it does so, and I think they'll be surprised. That's interesting. Now, you talk about... uh that Justice Thomas is an originalist. So for those in the audience that are not well-versed in the law, which is probably, you know, most people, could you kind of briefly explain what that means? Uh, Justice Scalia was the same, and I think you might liken it to like a contract. He had a really good example I heard on a podcast. Yeah, so I've got two. I'll give you them both since you heard one of them. So one is uh, my neighbor, when I got nominated to the Sixth Circuit, came running down and said, I can't believe you're one of those. You're an originalist. You write it in the paper. And I said to him, Mike, you're a businessman, right? And he said, yes. And I said, when you make a contract, what does it reflect? And he said, well, it reflects what we agreed to. And how do you show that agreement? He said, well, we put it in writing. Okay, well, why would you do that unless you're going to have a disagreement? Well, when you have a disagreement, is it the judge's job, I asked him, to interpret what you all meant when you put it in writing or tell you what they think is best for you? And he said, of course, interpret what we meant and put in writing. And I said, you two are an originalist now. And the point is is that (laughs) written words have meaning. So think of it, Wendy, I'm sure she might, or you, uh, have a great cookie recipe. And let's just call it Wendy's cookies because it's easy. And um, and she gives me a recipe, but I she puts dark chocolate chips. I want white chocolate. She puts a certain amount of sugar. I want more. And so I mix it up. Am I still making her cookies or am I making Amul's cookies now? I'm, of course, making Amul's cookies because that's no longer what she put down in her recipe. So I'm changing it. Judges aren't, we take an oath to this constitution. This constitution means we have to interpret the document as it was understood, just like the contractor recipe at the time it was made. It doesn't harm the American people to do so. In fact, it honors their will. And it most often means we'll step in when their rights are getting trampled that are documented in there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting um, contrast you make. I would remind us to have you back on when we talk about some of these fascinating copyright cases where they've done just that. They changed a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They've done some substitutions. But the jury basically says, oh, that's the same song. That's the same cookie recipe. Anyway, really fascinating. Um, everybody check out uh, the judge's new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. I do have to say, you know, this is a book that. Uh, the editor-in-chief of The Federalist said, you know, is really two superb books in one. And I love the quote, a breezy and accessible intellectual biography. Sounds like the definition of a fine wine, doesn't it? Of Justice Clarence Thomas and a survey of some of the most supreme, important Supreme Court cases of the modern era. Can you just briefly, we're at the end of the show, but what is the Twitter page for the book if you have one? Yeah, so if they put in the people's justice in the search, they'll come up with it. It's at CT, meaning Clarence Thomas, const, so C-O-N-S-T, stories. But the easiest way to find it, at least for me, is to put in the people's justice in the search bar, and they'll see all sorts of information in there. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And Thank you, Judge. And to our listeners, 
Don't touch that dial. We are going to have much more of today with Dr. Wendy on the other side of the break. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have really been talking about how in the world do we pare down in the second half of the show all of the super exciting decisions of the week. And I think we'll start with a case that we've been following. We've talked about it before. The, uh, this is the postal worker, the postal worker case in Pennsylvania, Gerald Groff, who basically uh, chose a job at the post office because they're closed on Sundays, and that's his day of service. It's, as a Christian, that's his Sabbath. And, you know, I, I think when we, when we talk about cases like this, and we always say, you know, you can't be forced to choose between your faith and your finances because that's a false choice. On the other hand, Larry, you know, the only options open shouldn't just be, you know, Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. There should be other places you can work if you want to take Sundays off. And, you know, for years, the post office was one of them. It wasn't until, you know, 2013 or 2014 that Amazon sort of dominated the market requiring postal employees to make deliveries on Sundays. But the U.S. Supreme Court this week basically said, look, employer, you have to accommodate the religious beliefs of your employees. And that's, you know, it's, it's a ruling that doesn't just extend to the Postal Service. But uh, what did you think about this? Were you surprised or has this just sort of been a long time coming? I, I'm really pleased with it. I, I it, it uh, the, the way the Supreme Court is ruling these days is is making me quite happy, actually. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, this case was uh, based uh, back in the, there's a title seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that requires employers to accommodate employees' religious practices unless doing so would be an undue hardship for the business. And that was kind of the crux of the case. What is a undue hardship? And then they had the case in 1977, Wendy, a trans world Airlines versus Hardison that said that employers can deny religious accommodations to employees when they impose more than a de minimis cost on the business, just a little cost. Well, that was interpreted so many different ways. You know, what does it mean to be a a de minimis cost? And uh, this one kind of widens it up. And I think this case, when he kicks it back to the lower courts to figure out the new standard, which means that you know, the employer's got to work a little harder to get a replacement, for example, for the postal worker if he can't work on Sundays. Is that what you're getting yeah. reading out of it? Yeah, it was interesting because that's exactly right. So many of these cases, like, you know, they're cited for these big victories. And, you know, the um, conservatives are calling this week a clean sweep <laughs> for some of their issues. And then you're right. We do look at the rulings and the rulings are, are they say one thing and um one side is happy, one side isn't. But then, you know, there's so many nuances and spinoffs. And you're right, so it'll go back to the lower court to make to, for that analysis. But, you know, the, the fact that so many of the decisions we had this week, in and of themselves, lend themselves to further litigation. 
like this example, um, like affirmative action. You know, that's that's one of the things that our, our guest just talked about. You know, the fact that Chief Justice Roberts said, you know, you can't use it as a criteria, but, you know, it can be considered if it's within an essay. Uh, no doubt will only create, I don't want to say total confusion, because we hope that the guidance we have is a little better than that, but will at least cr- uh, create this idea of, well, creatively, perhaps it still can be used in so many different ways, and, you know, people will just look for guidance there. Um, another decision that came out that no doubt is going to have the same kind of nuance that may spur uh, more litigation is the case about the web designer. And the issue of, you know, what exactly is creative expression and free speech? I mean, were there any surprises uh, um, there as well this week? Boy, that is going uh, so back and forth over the years. I don't know if you remember that baker in Colorado who's been... Yeah, drugged. masterpiece bake shop. Yeah, same state, same state, same law. It seems like he's had to give it up. He's had to give up his business as being a baker to become a professional litigant because they won't let him alone. But yeah, the case we're talking about now it's a three oh three creative LLC versus uh, e- e- Elenus. Uh and uh, I, I was pretty uh, happy with the decision because again. It's it's kind of a fine line, but when you're open to the public for business, you should be able to serve everybody. But there are certain circumstances that would go directly against your religious beliefs. And for example, I'll take the Muslim friends. I, I we are, we're into property management. We do rent to a, a number of, of people of the Muslim faith, and I, I can't imagine. Uh, somebody coming in to say to bake that kind of a cake or do that kind of a web design, I guess in this case, that would go directly against the the Quran, for example. So I think there's a bounce there, uh, a bouncing act. And I I personally am happy and pleased with this decision. You know, what's interesting about this decision, Larry, this was a preemptive strike. So this woman didn't already uh, face a lawsuit for refusing to design a website for a same-sex couple. It was wanting sort of a ruling, which was, you know, why we spent so much time talking about the standing issue. It was wanting a ruling on the legality of the request. And it begs the question, if you have a business and you have an open sign in the window of your business, does that then mean that you still reserve the right to refuse service? Now, many people put up signs that say exactly that. Um, and the court basically said that. And they, but they made the distinction that I think is very important. And you may remember this was also litigated, at least it was one of the issues in the Masterpiece Bake Shop. It wasn't so much that the, you know, that owner wasn't serving anybody that came in. That was fine. But the objection there was to celebrate within a ceremony that he didn't believe in because of his faith. So to hear um, it would only be designing a website that's almost a participation or or the expression of or the celebration of something that goes against one's firmly held religious beliefs. And it's, it's just interesting because it is the same kind of vote. Here it's a 6-3 vote split along ideological lines that, you know, the court said the First Amendment prohibits Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs, speaking messages with which the designer disagrees. That's uh, right from the opinion of Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion. Right. Yeah, it's a six th- uh, to three decision, just basically uh, along the lines of conservative versus liberal, uh, pretty much exactly. And uh, one of the things I think about when I see this many decisions coming out, uh, I 
can almost imagine that the wheels are turning on the left side about they'll go back to packing the Supreme Court because they're not liking what they're seeing. And that's always a concern when you see people that, that might want to do that. I think that would be a tremendous uh, mistake to do it. But as the court stands now, uh, again, I'm, I'm pretty happy uh, with that case, uh, the way it turned out. Yeah. And then, you know, when you look at the way these cases are turning out, um, obviously they're, they're very vehemently uh, either opposed or in favor of some of these positions to the extent that we've actually seen them reading. We saw this, you know, this week, some of the dissenting justices were reading their dissents from the bench. Um, That's powerful. You know, not only do they have an opportunity to, you know, say their piece, talk about what they think, but they also have an opportunity to do what they really haven't, unless you were like you and I listening on the phone to some of the oral arguments over the course of the pandemic. But it really is a chance for the reporters to get in there and hear, you know, the passion in their voices. And I just think that's important. You know, obviously, they're deciding based on the law. Um, but one of the things that I think the, the dissent, the, the dissenting justices, you could hear the frustration in their voices this week, and you can certainly pick up on it through the language they use in the dissent, is that there's this idea that precedent no longer means precedent, that there's a frustration among people that had for a long time thought, you know, that's settled law. Well, is there such thing as settled law anymore after the decisions of this week? I would even say, let's say this year, because the last term, also saw some of the same sentiments expressed. Yeah, you don't normally see them overturning precedent, but it does happen if you go way back to Plessy versus Ferguson, where they, they used to have uh, separate uh, railroad cars for the different races, and uh, they they had allowed that. Then the, comes along Brown versus Board of Education. They said, you know, separate uh, is inherently discrimination. So it overturned Plessy, which had been uh, the law for, for decades and decades. So it does happen. And then we saw the reversal of Roe v. Wade, too, uh, which happened uh, recently as well. So we like to rely on precedent, but every once in a while, um, especially if it's a bad law case, in my opinion, it, it should be overturned. And it's always challenged. Yeah, no, that, that's true. And, you know, there's always new circumstances. And I think it was interesting, Larry, you talked about how in the um, affirmative action case that originally there was this 25-year mark, like we're going to revisit this in so many years. You know, um, and it's interesting, and this is probably, we'll have to save this for another time, but I would love to get more into the fact that sometimes you get these um, these footnotes that are dropped in these opinions. Okay, now I'm really getting into the weeds. I know. Get a life, Wendy, right? <laughs> but you get these foot these footnotes that are dropped into some of these opinions that are just fascinating, you know, sort of bringing up or, or talking about the, the possibility that, well, you know, we're talking about Dobbs today, talking about same-sex marriage today, maybe we'll be talk, re- revisiting same-sex, same um, you know, some other issue in the future that is really kind of related, but not really. And then everybody jumps on that and says, this is a slippery slope. And I don't know, we'll save that for another day. Yeah. And, and but in any of, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Justice Scorsese said regarding this case of the web designer, he said, taken seriously, uh, that principle that would re- force her to design a website for this uh, couple that she doesn't agree with morally would allow the government to force all manner of artists, speechwriters, and others whose services involve speech to speak what they do not believe on pain of penalty. I thought that was a pretty classic, uh, uh, classy statement he made. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's just a really good example. So anyway, Larry and I can go on forever, but we are going to respect your weekend. Have a wonderful pre-4th of July weekend. And now that we finally have a beautiful sun in the sky, 
You've been listening to Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with the Silver Lining. We will see you right back here next weekend, same time. And we are wishing you a wonderful life worth weekend. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.